Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. On this show, we go through some of the more interesting points in the long, long history of cannabis. And we are both cannabis journalists and media makers, so this is of specific interest to us. And uh, before we get started, I should let you know that I have no prior knowledge of any of the story we're about to hear. Bean has done the research, and he's going to tell me the story, and we're going to smoke some weed, chat about it, have some tea, and have some fun. So, you know, kick it, hang out with us. Uh, Bean, you you ready to go? What do we got going on? Uh, well, I'm definitely ready to go. I think you got to get started rolling, RJ. I do, indeed. I've got my grinder here. We've got some sour diesel from Northern Cali, which I'm excited to smoke. We're East Coast boys, you know? Yeah, yeah. We don't get yeah. this stuff out here all the Shout time. Shout out, Sour D. Mm-hmm. Um, today's story is, I, I, I've been excited since I, I, I wrote it to, to share it with you. It's got uh, uh, action, it's got adventure, it's got comedy, it's got some tragedy. I mean, it's... Uh, wow, it's got everything. It's got everything. Are you just going to read me the screenplay from The Godfather? <laughs> Ah, you ruined the surprise. <laughs> no, sick. It's, it sounds it's, amazing. It's an epic tale and, uh, you know, definitely a, a weed culture hero at the center of it um, that a lot of people will know. And, and I'm sure some people will be introduced to for the first time. So. Amazing. And this D is very sour. I must mm. say, I'm just breaking it up in my hands right now. And the aroma is filling the room for sure. Okay, well then at this point, I'm going to advise you if you're listening at home and you're not quite rolled up, hit pause, roll something up, because I think we're ready for another great moment in weed history. Sick. Um, okay, so Bean, I've got the uh, SD ground up over here, about to twist it. Uh, why don't you tell me what we got going on today? All right, let's get right into it. The hero of today's great moment in weed history was born on October 15th, 1938 in Nigeria. Oh, man. Oh, man, I think <laughs> I know who it is, but I don't want to say it yet. Should okay. I guess? Uh, if you if you want to throw it out right away. Is it Fela? It is. Oh, shit. We're going to do a Fela weed story. Now, if you guys at home don't know, Fela Kuti is kind of a weed legend. There's all kinds of almost mythologically bizarre stories surrounding his weed adventures. So, oh, man, I'm stoked, Bean. And uh, we were in the car earlier today, and, and one of his songs came on, and I had to bite my... Bite my tongue not to tell you that, that that's what we're getting into today. That is wild. I know you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this one. So Sick. Okay, dope. All right. So his, his mother was an outspoken feminist and a leader of the anti-colonial movement. So Nigeria gained its independence from Great Britain in 1960. Um, so he grew up in colonial Nigeria and, uh, and his mother was part of the movement to gain independence. Interesting. And I mean, like, you know, Fela Kuti is definitely like a cultural, like post-colonial struggle hero or a colonial. I mean, it was during colonialism that he, you know, he sort of uh, came to fame, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll get we'll get into it in the story, but absolutely. He, he bridges those worlds. Incredible. And a lot of really amazing music. You know what I mean? That's just like uh, it was one of those eras where just 
every song, you know what I mean? Every rock or funk or traditional song that came out of Nigeria just had that warmth to it and just sounded so sick. Yeah, absolutely. So his, you know, his mother is uh, anti-colonial leader. His father was an Anglican minister, a school principal, and the first president of the Nigeria Union of Teachers. Oh, interesting. So he was politically involved as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and two of his brothers uh, became prominent physicians, and his cousin was the first African to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oh, wow. No kidding. So definitely a very multi-talented family. You know what I mean? And a lot of diversity there in career choice, you know? Doctors and, you know, musical icons. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, uh, I'm sure their family get-togethers were, were very interesting. So mm -hmm. in, in 1958, and so I think what's interesting too is he's this very rebellious figure, and we'll get into it, but, um, you know, his family that he grew up in, they're, they're you know, middle-class academics, uh, you know, it's not what you think of him, maybe, if if you're not that familiar with his life. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you think of sort of these revolutionary figures to be, you know, like uh, just for comparison's sake, like someone like Bob Marley to be from, you know, sort of the, the status quo, the sort of poorest of society, you know what I mean? And sort of rising up as an icon. But in fact, Fela was actually like, uh, you know, a kind of privileged, educated guy. Yeah, most definitely. So in, in 1958, sent to London to study medicine, like his brothers, Fella instead enrolled in Trinity College of Music with a focus on the trumpet. So while in the UK, he formed a jazz band, he got married, and he had three children. Um, then he returned to Nigeria, and he began fusing the jazz music he'd studied in London with the African rhythms of his homeland, um, ultimately developing a sound called Afrobeat that would in time become a worldwide sensation. Yeah, and you know, it's it's really interesting. I think Afrobeat in a lot of ways because of its very rhythmic nature is a lot more accessible than, you know, kind of traditional jazz. And it sounds like, I mean, he was in the UK playing traditional jazz at the time. I mean, this is probably like the 50s, right? Yeah, it's the late 50s, and he's, uh, I don't know anything particularly about Trinity College of Music, but it, you know, seems like a pretty rigorously academic place, and um, he took those two worlds and, and really fused them. And I think when we talk about fusion, whether it's in cuisine or in music or all these other things, um, some of the most beautiful things creations come from taking these two different cultures and i think one of the things that's cool about weed and i'm i'm guessing you'll agree is it's 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 a vehicle for fusing cultures it's a vehicle for connecting people and different ideas right yeah absolutely and i think it really promotes the collaborative spirit and a sort of empathy and acceptance right which go hand in hand to kind of break down whatever prejudicial walls people might have between each other. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's a lot of examples of, you know, of there being crossover. I mean, look, look at what Bong Appetit was. You know what I mean? It was literally, uh, you know, uh, sort of fusing things together over a fascination with cannabis. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's interesting to think how many countless musicians or any type of creative, you know, have collaborated over a session of just getting high together. You know what I mean? Because it really does get those creative juices flowing. You know what I mean? And I mean, you know, there's some that are very obvious, you know, creative partnerships in history. 
that are built around cannabis, like this one right here, <laughs> you and me being on great moments in weed history. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've I, as as a person who plays music, as a you know non professional musician, uh, you know, I personally find a lot of stimulation creatively when I'm getting high, you know, by by myself or with collaborators. Yeah, even even within the brain, um, there's a process called hyperpriming, which is how your brain connects two ideas that that don't seem to have an obvious connection. And science shows cannabis uh, ups your hyperpriming. Um, and I think that's a neurological example. We have all these cultural examples. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a wonderful thing. It truly is. And it helped Fela Kuti develop Afrobeat. Absolutely. Um, so, but up until 1969, uh, so he, he, he returns to Nigeria, he creates Afrobeat, um, and, you know, there's a long gestation time, uh, for that. And, but up till 1969, he was still an obscure local musician who hadn't tried cannabis. Wow. That's crazy. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm wondering at the time, how prevalent is cannabis in Nigeria? So it's, you know, it's under colonialism. The British, you know, in India, for example, were, uh, you know, they imposed a tax on cannabis, something that's indigenous and grows for a long time. I can't imagine they were very lenient with cannabis in Nigeria, another colony. I don't think so. Um, but also he's he's sort of this serious academic kind of buttoned up kind of guy, uh, even though he's a musician and he's very serious person. He's not even really a young person anymore by, by 69. He's, you know, 31. Right. Um, and this is, so he was 31 before he ever started the, the musical career that we know him for. Before he broke out. Yeah. He's, he's uh, a little spoiler alert. I don't like to do spoiler alerts, but two things are about to happen. He's about to smoke weed and he's about to make the music that makes him famous. No kidding. Coincidence? <laughs> or thanks weed for helping Phil Cudi invent Afrobeat? I think I think the latter. Mm-hmm. So it's 1969. He still hasn't smoked weed. He's still not famous. Um, and while his political leanings were solidly anti-authoritarian, you know, in, a, in accordance with his upbringing, he wasn't very political and he didn't really party. All of which changed as soon as he landed in Los Angeles for a residency with his band and promptly fell in with an American musician and political activist named Sandra Smith, who served as his guide, mentor, and lover throughout his 10-month stay in the city. All right. So Fela Kuti is getting a crash course in Love American style out here in sunny Los Angeles with a lady named Sandra. So she's opening his eyes to all kinds of stuff, right? It's the 60s. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a social revolution going on. What are they getting up to in Los Angeles? So Sandra taught Fella about African-American culture, introduced him to the Black Panther movement in which she was active, gave him books from her library to read, and even helped him fill in large gaps of African history that had been scrubbed from his colonial education. Interesting. So, you know, it sounds like perhaps uh, this is the first time that, you know, Fela might be really in a deep way learning about some of the injustices in the world, you know, that black people are facing, that people in Africa and in the United States are facing. So, you know, it's interesting that you said, you know, before he was like kind of suited and booted, cleaned up, you know, uh, guy. But now he's uh, 
getting a little more like red, black, and green, you know? Yeah, he's having this kind of epiphany. And, you know, he, it's it's interesting and ironic that he obviously had the best education um, that Nigeria could provide at the time, but it was skewed through colonialism. Right. Um, and it was, you know, the oppressor's history of his own homeland. Um, and so she is part of this sort of black nationalist movement in the U.S. And they're looking to Africa. And she describes in her, you know, she wrote sort of, you know, her memoirs of, of this time. Uh, they, it, it was very surprising to her that she would be the one talking about African history to an African. Right. Yeah, th that's crazy. And I mean, Sandra sounds really cool. Dare I ask, does she smoke weed? Sandra also introduced Fella to cannabis, which he would later call his, quote, best friend and, quote, a gift of the creator to Africans. Um, the liner notes of the album he recorded in Los Angeles at that time makes clear that this relatively late in life embrace of cannabis. So he's 31. Right. So he has not really blazed it all this entire time. No, he's been this buttoned up dude. And 31, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. You, I, I think everybody knows if you're real into weed culture, some of those people who, who it comes to them later in life, it is profound. Yeah. Wow. Th that's really interesting to think about. I mean, you know, you definitely, if you've never used cannabis or any type of psychedelic before, and you kind of go through life, you know, developing beliefs and, you know, kind of your personality traits. You know, definitely, I mean, you smoke cannabis then and it's like you might have a huge shock. You might, you know what I mean? Like when you're young, you're still curious and you're learning. I think you're less likely to, uh, you know, really be like deeply fundamentally affected by it because as a young teenager, you're not that deep yet. You know what I mean? I, and also everything's up for grabs at that age. So the idea that something comes in and gives you all this new data it, you're kind of still figuring everything out and formulating everything. Yeah. When you're 31 and you have that experience, and I've talked to people, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people yeah. who fit that boat. They're like, man, I thought I kind of had the self that is myself. And, um, you know, of course, some people could smoke later in life and it doesn't really change anything. But for a lot of people, they're like, whoa. I'm going to take this and 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 re-examine everything. Have you ever thought what you'd be like if you hadn't smoked weed until like today? Until t <laughs> well, today would be an interesting day. I, I always you wouldn't say, be sitting here doing a <laughs> weed history podcast with me. <laughs> Fairly unlikely. I always say, and I say this about myself. I'm putting this on myself. Um, we, weed's not the cure for being an asshole, but it's a good place to start. Yeah. And I, I I think that. You know, there's a pretty decent chance that I would be uh, kind of an asshole, definitely an angrier person, definitely like um, was was a chip on my shoulder adolescent, you know, and 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 that experience that I had much younger than 31 was the beginning of kind of coming out of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so weird, man. I really can't imagine what I would be like if I didn't smoke weed, like what job would I have or what would I be doing in life you know it's like and I don't think that I would like switch to another drug and just be drinking or whatever I think I would just maybe you know what maybe I'd exercise more 
And actually, that, that, that's not really, you know, that's not really to, to Pot's credit. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who incorporate cannabis into their workout routines. Uh, you know, and I'm one of them when I when I go hiking, I guess, which is walking and smoking weed at the same time. Right. <laughs> I've but, seen him do it. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen. He's not he's not just boasting. He's he's he can pull it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, it's it's hard to imagine. And I'm sure that like, you know, Phil Acuti got to a certain point with this new psychedelic experience and was like, holy shit, I'm a completely different guy than I was before I did this. Yeah, and I think it, it, it it's all part and parcel of everything he's learning about his own history and his own, you know, it's like um, the reason, uh, hey, half of America, the reason you might want to talk to people who are a little different than you is that they might have some ideas that can benefit you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's for some reason, about half of people don't seem to get that. Yeah. Well, that's on them. That is definitely on them. I don't think that's <laughs> a little outside of our, our purview on this podcast to heal half of America's brain disease. Uh, we're trying. But... We'll try. <laughs> I'm not against it. I'm just saying we have to set a bar for success that is lower than solving yeah. all the world's problems. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> so this changes his music forever. Uh, getting high for the first time, as is explained in the liner notes. So I'm going to read from the, the liner notes. All right, let's hear it. During rehearsals in Los Angeles, after smoking a joint for the first time, Fellas said he heard this heavy bass line vibrating in his head in the rhythm of the traditional Yoruba music from the west of Nigeria. The result, My Lady Frustration, an instrumental piece dedicated to the lady who stood by him during his evolution in the U.S. and who felt frustrated with all the problems encountered by Fela in his musical search for greener pastures. Wow, that's interesting. So he sort of has uh, a communal experience with, you know, uh, something from his home, which is interesting to think because, you know, like a lot of those, uh, you know, indigenous religions in a lot of places are deeply tied to psychedelic experience. Maybe not necessarily cannabis experience specifically, but, you know, the fact that, like, the drums brought him back, you know what I mean? And in fact, you know, a lot of the rhythmic dancing that, you know, people do to drums is, like, to induce sort of, you know, uh, hallucinations. You know what I mean? To induce, like, a sort of... Uh, intoxicating experience, spiritual experience. Yeah, absolutely. Chanting... Um, dancing, drumming, all of those things kind of lock you into a state. And a fellow went on and he really became a devotee of this religion. Um, he sang about it. He practiced it himself. And, and I don't think religion was really a part of his life up until this moment either. Okay, so he, this ends, he's, he's dedicated this song to this woman who stood by him in his, uh, with some of his frustrations. So among those frustrations, this is still while he's in Los Angeles, he auditioned for a gig at Disneyland and was told he didn't play African music authentically enough. Okay, so then after that, his residency at a club on the Sunset Strip grew so popular that a rival band leader tipped off immigration and most that most of the band had overstayed their visa and they all got the boot. Oh my God, he trumped them. <laughs> Bro. That's a dick move. Who was that band leader? Uh, lost to non-friend of the show. But yeah, I don't serious non-friend of the enemy show. Enemy of the show? Do we have enemies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That word is so strong. That's, <laughs> that's, that's low, though. 
Yeah, that you know, is low, man. I feel like, okay, if you're like the drug czar and you're an asshole, that's kind of baked into the the job. But yeah. if you're a band leader. And you get that. And, and also, it's like, you know, this is a Salieri situ- situation, right? This is like, I'll never be as talented as you, so I'm going to try to cut your legs out from under you and be sneaky and do all this shit. And look, man, that's like a hack move. You know what I'm saying? What we call a hack move. You that's know? weird. Yeah, it's weak as shit. So, fuck this guy. Uh, but, you know, Fela gets booted from the country regardless. Yeah, the whole band. Oh, um, shit. So, first of all, props to them for, you know, making it that long and being like famous club performers <laughs> in America <laughs> for ages before, you know, immigration was like, oh, shit, there's like 19 people here <laughs> that don't have papers. Well, I, I let's see. How long were they? I think it was 10... 10 months total that he was in Los Angeles. So I don't know quite how long. Wow. So, and he's suddenly booted back home after this like crazy transformational year for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So back in Nigeria, Fela's music grew defiant. He didn't just rail against the system or oppression. He called out specific government leaders and corrupt institutions in his songs. Whoa, a risky move, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that's a really important distinction to make because um, talking about these things in general, sure, it doesn't make the authorities happy. Mm-hmm. But when he would call out the, the minister of defense, he would call out um, specific corrupt deals that that the government was making uh, with foreign companies, even U.S. companies, because this is this post-colonial period mm. where sort of everything's up for grabs. Yeah. Now there's a new government. It's no longer Great Britain. Um, and everybody wants to make money. Yeah. And he's calling these things out by name. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy. Like col- the the idea behind colonialism is essentially going in and quote unquote civilizing these places, right? But really, all they do is go and destabilize them. I mean, this is something that literally continues to this day. So that once they're gone, it's whoever has the most might basically takes over. And the thing about that is that those are not like, you know, scrupulous powers. They're the kind of powers that might kill you or might harm your family. Or, you know, you have to really think about the step away that someone like Fela took from privilege. You know what I mean? T- taking risks, essentially, uh, you know, risking his own life in a lot of ways by calling out people like that so directly. Yeah. And this is pretty, it's pretty electrifying what he's doing um, because he's slowly, and, you know, this is over years, he's becoming a bigger and bigger star and sort of a symbol of Nigeria. And he is putting out this information that people are not getting from the media there, they're not getting from the government. So he's he's almost this journalistic figure in a way through his music telling these, these stories. Oh, wow. So that's another aspect of this. I mean, you know, now I think in the context, a lot of us listen to this music and we might not completely understand what he's saying. We might consider it poetry or some in some way abstract. But in a lot of instances, he's actually talking about a real political situation at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And specifics. And that's, we'll, we'll see what happens, but but that's what uh, brings things down on him that, you know, sort of singing in general about, wouldn't it be great if there was no oppression is very different from saying that person right there is oppressing everyone. 
Um, he's battle rapping. Yeah. He's battle rapping and he's punching up mm-hmm. uh, in a big way. Badass. Um, so he also turned his home into a commune slash recording studio slash performance space. He dubbed the Kalakuta Republic and later declared to be sovereign territory, fully independent of the Nigerian state. Whoa. So he started his own country. This was, you know, Fayetteville, Nigeria, basically his little independent world. Yeah. Not even Fayetteville, Nigeria, just... It's own republic. Yeah. And and this was inside Nigeria, though. This is inside Nigeria. This is like his compound. He lives there. He's got a recording studio. Um, it's Fayetteville Cootie Land. It's <laughs> yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, he had a performance space in there. People would come in and the band would perform. It became very difficult for him um, to tour and to play because they would threaten the venues that were going to... Right. Uh, host him, you know, they made it very difficult for him. So he instead, you know, like I think anybody would do in this circumstance, you'd hunker de- down. You'd, yeah, declare a sovereign nation. nation. Yeah, and, put up some uh, sandbag walls. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And actually, was this the time when he was like hanging out with Ginger Baker a whole bunch? It's, yeah, that's it's right in the same mix. No kidding. That's wild. Yeah, I remember seeing in the Ginger Baker documentary which uh, it's something called like, what's up, Mr. Baker or something like that. But anyway, it's, it's a great doc, right? But in that, uh, you know, they talk about Ginger Baker's time in Lagos and, you know, hanging out with Phil Cootie and just being a baller. And then when the shit hits the fan, he's just like, pow, he's gone. You know, they were like, yeah, we saw Ginger Baker just fucking run off and we never saw him again. You know what yeah. I mean? Because there was like a military coup or, or something. Yeah, you know? a lot of shit goes down. So he was the, he was the drummer for Cream, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, with Eric Clapton. Legend. Dude's legend. Um, So, without a doubt, cannabis was legal in the Calicutta Republic. No, uh, yeah, no wiggle room on that. It is. It is quite totally legal. (laughs) And are they like cultivating it on these grounds? Basically, I didn't. I didn't find anything about uh, him cultivating it. uh, But it is quite plentiful and. And totally legal in this sovereign state. So it's it's totally legal to to do what you're doing right now, which is smoke a joint in the Calicutta Republic. You, you do it too. And thank you. So Fella not only allowed his musicians to get high before a performance, he sometimes required it. <laughs> yeah, and, and this again, I can say from experience, um, being stoned and playing a show whether it's like, you know, in a basement or, you know, in, in front of like a huge audience, it's really like invigorating and very fun. Being drunk feels invigorating, but you sound like shit and you think you sound good and you don't notice your own mistakes. When you're stoned, I mean, at least I find, I play the drums, right? It makes you very precise. And it, I don't know, you really feel the energy of whoever's watching or the guys you're playing with or, or whatever. You know what I mean? So... Getting high and playing live is incredible. And, you know, I would have loved to work for Fela Kuti at this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've, but just know occasionally uh, mandatory weed before you get on the stage. and uh, Very good working conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know what you're signing on for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so oppression and civil war are raging outside the walls in the early 1970s, but all was relatively chill in Fela's free state. Until his music grew so popular, it attracted the attention of the Nigerian government. 
Oh, shit. Okay, so he's out here, you know, living in his own little private country in Nigeria, making politically inflammatory music, ruffling some feathers down at City Hall, you know, uh, giving the suits a run for their money. You know, there's a lot of euphemisms I could use for, <laughs> uh, you know, for what he's doing. But basically, he's standing up to the man, and now the man notices him and stands back. Oh, well, stands yeah. at him. You know yeah, it's saying? a stand Stands back in him. It's a standoff. <laughs> it's a standoff <laughs> between Fela Kuti and the Nigerian government. Yeah, and this is a very, you know, um, politically dicey time in Nigeria as sort of a, a power vacuum after colonialism and, you know, a brewing civil war. So, you know, it's it, it, he's he's taking big risks. OK, so um, this is now from um from Fella, This Bitch of a Life, which is basically his autobiography. Wow, that's an epic fucking name for your yeah. autobiography. Yeah, so he says... Um, Mine's going to be called, Can I Get Two Extra Barbecue Sauces? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, from, from This Bitch of a Life. My first clash with Law & Order people was on April 30th, 1974. Um, so, 1969 was... This transformation, he, he got a good five years of getting bigger, and, and so here they come. Yeah. Oh, what bastards. At that time, there wasn't any barbed wire fence around my place. I had nothing to fear. I was just preaching revolution for Africa, you know? I didn't know they were planning against me. So when these motherfuckers came to bust me for grass, they had no trouble getting in at all. Ah, so they're coming at him with the little, you know... A faulty charge of grass. You know, it's like it's like that little, uh, you know, like when a cop pulls you over clearly because you know they just want to break your balls, and then they say, "Oh, I pulled you over because you have this air freshener. It's obstructing your view." This is like their uh, probable cause, right? One of the whole undercurrents of the war on marijuana, as you call it, is as a tool to go after political dissidents and as a tool to go after any movement or person that challenges the status quo. Um, and in the U.S., um, in the 60s and 70s, you know, there's a long documented history of this. And when uh, Nixon on the White House tapes, um, you know, or, or, or one of Nixon's henchmen uh, basically said later, you know, we wanted to go after black people because they weren't going to vote for us. Yeah. And because our base is racist. That was in 13th, right? In that Netflix doc. And, but the other prong is we can go after the anti-war movement. Um, those people smoke cannabis. It makes you susceptible to law enforcement. And you, we don't want to go. It's like if we go after them because of their speech or because of their advocacy or organizing, then we're literally going against the Constitution. And also that's going to make us look oppressive. Yeah. But if we set people up for weed busts. And, you know, th that's crazy. Like throughout history, items that promote free thinking, whether it be literature, a book, a story, a mythical figure or a psychedelic drug or cannabis, it always threatens authority because the last thing they want is people thinking freely and questioning that authority, you know? I think the crazy thing is what, what dissidents like Phil Akuti do 
is they attract the ire of the government and you know the government then sort of turns them into martyrs in some way you know what i mean yeah there yeah. was a there was a saying among sort of 60s radicals in the US heighten the contradictions and what it basically meant is they're oppressing us anyway but if you don't force them to do it out in public in front of television cameras and in people's faces then they can both oppress you and get away with pretending mm. that they're not yeah um yeah so like he says he's got no barbed wire you know he's he's not it's 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 a it's a country it's not a compound at this point right um and so they had no trouble getting in at that time you got up to 10 fucking years just for smoking grass but i never used to hide that shit and these bastards man found grass everywhere under the carpets in the bathroom in the kitchen every fucking place all my people smoke Everybody has his own shit. We all went to prison. About 60 of us were packed in the same cell like animals. It's so true, man. Like, there is just, if you smoke a lot of weed, there's weed everywhere. It's like, you know, there's weed on your tables. It's on basically on every service. It's on all your clothes. You know what I mean? So they're all locked up. And, I, I mean, I can't yeah. imagine prison in Nigeria is very pleasant. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's very pleasant anywhere. <laughs> I think it tops out at pleasant in, like, Norway. Yeah. Seems pretty decent. <laughs> like, uh, but very pleasant is, is, is tough. I think the other thing that's interesting is, like, that idea of let's just all stay in one place and make art and be together is, like, such a weed idea. Mm. And he's, he's trying to make the 60 people, dude. That's a big... Yeah. yeah, you know it's a small country, so it's like his friends, his family, his band. It's everybody. It's, it's the it's the musicians, it's the dancers. He has these big stage shows with dancers and a lot of musicians. You know, Afrobeat is almost like a little orchestra sized group sometimes. Um, so they they are all put in in jail. Um, that was the first time in my life I was taken to jail. That first time, it's a funny feeling. Not the other times, just that first one. Because you know how people are brought up thinking that jail is just for criminals? For people who've gone against society, all that law and order shit? Well, inside jail, I found guys who were also just looking for a better life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's sort of suddenly becoming aware that the lines aren't so, you know, it's not so black and white. Who's good or bad or innocent or guilty? Yeah, I think he kind of has these two assumptions. You know, people talk about being disillusioned always as a bad thing, but uh, illusions are sometimes dangerous. You don't want to yeah. have... Um, and he has these two illusions. One is, okay, if I'm just speaking my mind, I'm not going to get in trouble. Nothing bad's going to happen if I'm just talking about things. And then the second one is this idea of like, oh, well, yeah, the people in jail are criminals. Um, and he comes to find both of those things at once are, are not correct. So he, he says, I started thinking, who the fuck is society? Who jails society when it does horrors to people? Why don't society fight against corruption and punish the powerful? Um, he's, he spends eight days in jail waiting to make bail. While I had been in jail those eight days, the police took everybody from the house. 
Uh, the women spent about two months at welfare. They had to escape by jumping over the fence. Those my girls. That's why I had to marry them. They were a bunch of wild motherfuckers. Oh, right. Fela Kuti had like 80 wives, right? I think it was 20, 27 wives. And um, w w what the deal is, you know, you hear that story a lot, but um, he married them all in part so that the government couldn't claim they were being kidnapped. Oh. And, and, and force them into like this welfare house, basically. Mm -hmm. So when I got home from jail, the house was almost completely empty. So I got fucking high and went fast asleep. At 4 a.m., guess who shows up? The police. Police. Fuck it. I swear I didn't know the police would come to raid me again. So, I mean, it might sound crazy to people who don't smoke weed that the first thing you do when you got home after getting arrested for smoking weed. Just smoke some fucking weed. But, I mean, what would be the first thing you would do? Smoke some weed. I mean, you know, I, I remember when, like, I was in high school and we would run away from the cops. When you got away, you would <laughs> celebrate by smoking some weed, which is a thing you were, you know, about to get busted for. Um, but yeah, of course. So I hear Tarn, 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 you know, knocks on the door. Mm -hmm. I had Wait, a... he, the the, the onomatopoeia he used is Tarn? <laughs> yeah. Tarn, Tarn, Tarn. So, wow, that's, that's a, it's a metal door, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I had a spyglass on my door, but I didn't even bother to use it. I just opened the door and bam, who do I see? Five detectives. Now, I'd smoked some joints earlier. What was left was in the ashtray on a small table near my bed. They'd just finished raiding me, man, so I wasn't ready to have them catch me again. I said, police, what do you want? They said they'd come to raid me again. Again? You just finished. I have a woman inside. She's naked. You cannot come in here until she is dressed. He's, you know, this is a private residence, man. <laughs> you know? Okay, so he, he, he tells the cops he's got a naked woman inside that buys him a little time. I banged the door in their face and quickly went to my ashtray. I put all the grass in my mouth. Plenty, man. <laughs> oh, he eats the weed. This is also my instinct if I'm, like, driving is to just eat it. So he, 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 he gets a, a, about a handful of, of these roaches, basically, uh, in my mouth, just like that. You follow me? Uh, so he says, I stood at the door and suddenly opened it. I did like I was feeling sick, holding my mouth like I wanted to vomit, and I ran to my toilet. I just rushed through them, the cops, like five detectives. Right. He's got all his weed in his mouth. He's got his hand over his mouth. Uh, and he's just like, <laughs> I'm going to throw up. And he just busts through them, and they have no idea what the fuck's going on. Uh, genius. Oh, my <laughs> God. That's fucking genius, man. Because they're probably like, look, no one wants to get thrown up on. You know what I mean? If he's like coming at them, it's like, let this guy go throw up. We're going to arrest him, you know. But he's yeah. got all his weed in his mouth. And they probably think he's like a crazy person anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, this is like, he's a he's an agitator to them. They're um, squares. Yeah, they are definitely squares. So they didn't know what I was doing. I was too fast for them. My toilet was just there. I opened the sink, spit everything into it, ran the water, pushing everything down the drain in a rush. Then I went back into my room, closed the door again, just to make sure I searched every corner and cleared my room. Then I opened the door and said, come in. 
<laughs> At this point, they had to have been like, all right, you know, that vomiting thing was totally a trick. <laughs> Otherwise, they're just bad cops. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, especially he says they're detectives. Uh, so he opens the door and assuming, you know, nonchalantly just says, hey, come on in. Uh, uh, they started to search here, there, under, everywhere. They didn't find shit. Then they dropped one joint that they brought themselves. Oh, so they're planting it on him. Oh, my yep. God, those pricks. Just one joint. Just enough to send me to jail for 10 years, man. Holy shit. Yeah, and then you see, they were they were sent with the intention of arresting this guy. It didn't have anything to do with weed. Yeah. You know what I mean? If they were worried about weed, why would they bring it themselves to so, set him up? Once again, anti-cannabis laws are used as a tool of oppression, you know, for somebody. It's like basically to rub people out. Most definitely. So we found this, they said, holding up this joint that he sees them drop. Uh, and he and fellow said, I can't see it. So they brought it close to my face and showed it to me. Right up to my face. <laughs> then suddenly, in a split second, really fast, I grabbed it, put it in my mouth, and jumped on my bed. I swallowed it. <laughs> so I took a whiskey bottle by my bed, put it to my mouth, and washed that shit down. Then I started to lecture them. Motherfuckers, what's the matter with you? I'm trying to save this fucking country, man. You want to put me in jail? What have I done? Because I fucking smoke? Yeah, holy shit, he's putting it to him. These guys are not going to pick up what Phil is putting down right now because they're a bunch of fucking squares. But, you know what? That doesn't mean they don't deserve a lecture regardless, you know, from the man himself. Yeah, he is, uh, he's letting them have it. They were looking at me while I was eating it. Uh, there, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, everybody knows what happened. You know, he knows... That they were planning weed on him. Yeah. They know he knows that. Yeah. And now they know that he ate it right in front of their fucking faces. So, so at least for the time being, they know that the weed is still, you know, kind of on him or rather just in him. You know what I mean? So, you know, what I'm really curious about is obviously Fela Kuti is the wild card in this situation. What is the police's next move? <laughs> So they were looking at me while I was eating it. There was left about one tiny grain inside the paper. And they took that one tiny grain, looked at me, and said, let's go. Oh, wow. So uh, on a flake of weed. It's like he's at the airport in Dubai. Yeah. So the first raid had been done rough. So this time they made sure they did it neat and clean. So the reason they're raiding him again is... When they went through the police reports and everything from the first raid eight days earlier, they were like, oh, this was done sloppily and this might not hold up in court and we really want to get this guy. Right. Okay. So this is a, a second go at it for them. That's why they brought the joint because they were like, we're taking this guy no matter what. We're taking this guy no matter what. And in their, I don't want to say in their own defense, um, but- it's ironic that he's being framed for a crime that he committed. You know, yeah. it shouldn't be a crime, but he clearly commits it. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> the levels of irony are, are, are deep on this one. Yeah. Um, 
So what happened? So so they even called an officer who was waiting uh, waiting to greet me when we got back to the police station. Fella is coming. This time we got him. He said. Uh, when we got there, this policeman was sitting on his chair. I stood there with four detectives standing next to me. So the man, looking big, stood up in the front. He asked them, so you got him? Yes. But when we showed it to him, he grabbed it and ate it. Uh, (laughs) So the detective at the station was shocked. So the man was so shocked, he looked at me as if I was the biggest criminal he ever saw and said, lock him up. So this was the second time I was locked up in the same week. They put me in a cell. I was there for hours waiting. I could see the officers through the cell door running up and down. Motherfuckers were planning on me, and I was just looking at them and thinking, they can't charge me with shit because they ain't got nothing to test, nothing to show. Shit. All right. So, I mean, essentially, at this point, you know, charges, it's like, what are charges? You know, like, these these guys are corrupt as shit. You know what I mean? They're going to do whatever they have to do to fuck with Fela Kuti, you know? It's uh, it's interesting that right now he's like, nah, you know, whatever. Once this goes through the system, <laughs> you know, like, I'm confident that I'll end up back in my own independent country. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it seems like he's fucked. I mean, it's like, you know, to say that they got no charge on me, they can't do shit is pretty optimistic considering that it seems like he's fucked. It's, it's optimistic for somebody who's been arrested twice in a week and was just had evidence planted on him. I agreed. I think, you know, I think probably once he, you know, the ambassador of the uh, Republic got in touch with the Nigerian authorities, you know, this would become sort of an international Fiasco. incident kind of thing. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> it surprisingly doesn't play out that way. Oh, shit. What happens? <laughs> um so then they they he's in jail for a while. Then they made me get into a a, a Peugeot Peugeot. What's the name of that car? Oh, Peugeot. Peugeot. I think. And they took me to a military hospital and then to see the head military doctor. Um, so they wanted to pump his stomach to get the weed out. They haven't forgotten about that, Jay. They're no. still like, oh shit. You know what? <laughs> What's funny is. Can they go into the evidence room and just grab another J? No. They want the J that he ate that's in him already. Okay, so, they, I mean, they, you know, look, again, I don't want to say to the police's credit, but bold move, you know what I mean? Phil Goody came through and ate the evidence right in front of you, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to wait till you shit it out. <laughs> or not even wait. They're going to pump they, it out of they him. They want to pump So that's their first instinct is we just, hey, this is simple. We pump this guy's stomach. There's weed in there. Oh, shit. I was making the dun-dun-dun thing with my hand. Right. So how does our hero get <laughs> out of this one? <laughs> so uh, his it turns out the head military doctor is his cousin. And he's like, no, I'm not fucking doing that. Um, oh, and- no kidding. Oh, wow. So he's uh, he's got the inside uh, connection here. Yeah, it's his cuz. He's like, cuz, I got weed in my stomach. Yeah, I can, you can't pump this shit. My shit out. Give it to the cops. Don't give my shit to the We're cops. Like, here. So, Bro, so, the cops want my shit. Don't give it to them. What's this? Your shit. I'm not uh, <laughs> familiar with this your term. shit. Cootie. <laughs> <laughs> we want your shit right now. It's Put your hands up. up. Put your shit on the floor. <laughs> Come out peacefully. So they get nagged at the hospital. And uh, so going back to Fella's uh, description... 
Guess who was outside the hospital waiting for me? The police. The boss of Nigerian Interpol. Oh my God, the big police. So this this is the international. This shows you that this was from the top down. This was somebody well high up in the government of Nigeria saying, this shit stops now. And the way we're going to get this guy is his uh, kryptonite-like weakness for weed. Holy shit. This is clearly a, a much more grave matter than we first assumed. Uh, and I mean, he's kind of, now he's cornered on all fronts, right? Well, he's still in custody, but but the weed is still in custody of his stomach, possibly working its way. I don't know all the vagaries of how soon, you know, things get to your colon and stuff, but like, yeah. they're, they're holding him, he's holding the weed, we're at a standoff phase. Yeah. Um. So the boss of Nigerian Interpol was actually waiting there for the results of my shit thing. Like, he can't believe this. Dude, that's fucking nuts. They really want his shit. Yeah, Yeah, they really do. So when I was finally taken to court, they charged me with possession of Indian hemp. Uh, Weed, obviously. They said in court that I had eaten the Indian hemp, that it was still in my stomach, and so they wanted me kept in jail to collect samples. You understand, man? When I heard that in court, I said, collect my shit. These police never give up. Seriously, like I was saying, you know, in the game of chess between Fela Kuti and the Nigerian authorities, uh, you know, this sort of game of chicken they're playing, you know. I mean, uh, right now the ball's in Fela's court and it doesn't seem like there's a lot he can do. So the magistrate asked, how many days do you need to collect the samples? And the cops said three days. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I guess that'll like, you know, guarantee that everything's, you know, out of the system. <laughs> yeah. Or or sort of how long could this dude hold out on us? Because nah. uh, I think, you know, it, it, I don't I, I don't think you can do that when you don't have to. So they, they took me back and locked me up for three more days. When my mother found out, she started to send me vegetables to eat to quench the vegetables inside me. Oh, okay. So, so she figured, like, I'm going to get your digestive system going to burn up the evidence. Or, or I think, like, bind you up so you can wait three days and not shit. Oh, really? I feel like eating, like, a lot of vegetables would, you know, be fiber and you would probably be more likely to to yeah. shit. I guess no? it gets, I, I, you know. Or uh, maybe, like, the, the way I interpret it is, is she's like, Oh, like, you know, if he eats a bunch of vegetables, it'll just mix it around with the weed and, you know, then it'll be gone. I mean, it's just yeah. probably like a gram or two of weed in that joint, right? Either way, his mom's got some sort of plan. Some sort of plan, food-related plan. That's a mom move. Yeah. So the first day, I refused to shit. Okay, so he's holding it. He's holding it. Then, in the middle of the night, one of the prisoners woke me up. He said, fella, all the police are asleep. Okay. Shit in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, how did you know they're trying to get my shit? And he's like, what? No. I ask everybody to yeah. shit my hands. <laughs> okay, so uh, all the police are asleep. Why don't you come and shit in the pail? Because they won't see you shitting. Then they're going to throw it away tomorrow with everybody else's shit. This is really a surreal sort of situation almost. You know? It's super surreal. Yeah. I mean. So, so, so then, but now he's got an out. He's well, yeah. So he's got the he's got this bucket, and and it's like uh, just so much. 
weird, like the guard falls asleep. I mean, it's all these sort of like, there's all this, like I said, there's tragedy in this story. And then it's kind of this weird stoner comedy. Okay. So there were eight of us in the cell. I crept to where the pail was and did my shit there. In the morning, the police threw it away, thinking it was the shit of the other prisoners. Then the police come and say, fella, why don't you want to shit yet? And I said, shit. No, I don't want to shit, man. Shit, no come. (laughs) So another standoff. Oh, shit. But now, does he know that for sure that he has shitted out the joint that he ate? Well, he does it one more time. Uh, Same thing, shitting in the pail again. Guard is either not watching or falls asleep. He shits again. Um, Okay, so now he's definitely gotten the joint out. Yeah. Well, so he says, then the morning I was doing court, I woke up at 6.30 in the morning, and I called out, Hey, police, I want to shit! <laughs> <laughs> so now he's sure it's pretty much, now it's just uh, Mama Cootie's vegetable casserole that he's going to be shitting out, and not the, you know, Nigerian police's planted joint. Yeah, yes. And so he says, tells him he wants to shit. Ooh, see the commotion in the police state, man. Fella wants to shit! Everybody's like... That's fucking hilarious man and they all want it they want that shit bad and they've been literally waiting for like days right at this point for that shit they want it so bad they can smell it oh there's been meetings i'm really surprised that at this point they haven't just like grabbed another joint and been like oh we found this on them too you know i looked for an account of this story that was maybe written by the judge or written by one of the cops i didn't their their side of the story is not as well documented no shit everybody's looking for a chamber pot policeman orderly constable everyone they all want fellas shit (laughs) they took me to the backyard put the chamber pot under my ass and i shit when i looked down at it man it was clean like a baby shit (laughs) that's how i got myself out of that shit that time man the motherfuckers couldn't charge me for any fucking thing no evidence do you know what his next album was called what expensive shit no kidding dude (laughs) okay so i think i've seen is there a song called expensive shit as well okay cool yeah i think i've seen that song maybe you showed it to me uh, you know, and I didn't realize the connection until now. So just, you know, to kind of, that was the, our, our great moment yeah. is obviously him getting away with this. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, as Fella himself said, these police, they don't give up. Shit. So they were still coming at it, dude. Oh, yeah. So this gets heavy. Um, so uh, they especially didn't give up after he released the album Zombie in 1977, a smash hit around the world that likened the Nigerian military to an army of the undead committing atrocities on its own people. So he has not let up. He is coming at them politically. He's coming at them personally in his music, despite having been persecuted so relentlessly the first time around. Yeah, absolutely. And this is... This is the album that makes him a superstar. Um, You know, he was well-known, influential figure and popular in places, but Zombie was a smash hit around the world. And um, in Nigeria, especially, it was a sensation that he would say this, you know. Uh, uh, Like I said, it gets gets dark. Um, 
So in, re- in retaliation, over 1,000 soldiers attacked the Calicuta Republic. Fellow was beaten to within an inch of his life, and his elderly mother was thrown from a window to her death. Oh, my God. So, you know, like, before this, it was like a standoff, and they seemed to be operating within some bounds of the law despite planting, you know, drugs on them. But it sounds like the government was just like, that's it, we're going to take them by force. And that is an incredibly brutal way. Yeah. And I think, you know, the important distinction, like how, how I said earlier, he was calling out specific people, and that brought one level of heat down. Now he was becoming such a big figure in Nigeria and he was interested in politics. You know, a lot of artists might say, well, my art is my political expression, but I'm not part of politics. He was somebody who was actively organizing people and working with dissident groups and revolutionary movements and, and trying to build sort of a political party within Nigeria. So the as as his threat to the authorities escalates, their willingness to respond in intensity escalates. So now, like, you know, they've got him. Well, I mean, they've killed his mother. They beat him within an inch of his life. He, he says um, in his account that they were basically going to beat him to death and somebody stepped in. Wow. Um you know, one of the cops stepped in. Right. Because this is the other thing. These were the military people. These were this, these weren't the cops, actually. This was a military raid. Um, so, and and his, the album was about how the soldiers were committing atrocities. Jesus, so to, yeah. to show how that was an unfair portrayal, they killed his mother. Um, so Fela, uh, in the aftermath of this, when he recovers from his injuries, he delivered his mother's coffin to the home of the military commander who ordered the attack. So he doesn't back down at all. Wow, man, that is incredibly tragic. And, you know, it's heroic of him to continue standing up after something like that. You know, that's that would strike fear into a lot of people, uh, you know, to the point that they would probably give up their cause. But not Philakuti. No. So uh, on the raid's one-year anniversary, he marries 27 women from the compound, a lot of them singers, composers, and dancers, uh, you know, to protect them. And uh, in 1979, he created his own political party and tried to run for president of Nigeria, but his candidacy was denied by the authorities. He had a political base of power. Um, It wasn't some far-fetched idea that he could be a credible candidate. Uh, to win. So this, you know, so they denied him the chance to run. In 1984, uh, the government jailed him for 20 months on trumped up currency smuggling charges. In total, he was arrested over 200 times in his life, but he never stopped speaking out or smoking weed. Wow, man. So no matter what, he's still stood up. Dude, that's incredible. 200 times is a lot. I mean, at some point, that's just like, you know, hi, Barry. Hi, Janet. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Um, So, yeah, he's arrested 200 times in his life, but he never stopped speaking out or smoking weed. He died in 1997, uh, most likely of AIDS, uh, leaving behind an immense legacy as a musical innovator, 
a political revolutionary and a cannabis liberator. Uh, it's no coincidence that in 2016, an international survey by the Adam Smith Institute ranked Nigeria as the third most pot-smoking country on earth. Fucking A, man. And I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of that pot smoking was propagated by the OG, the inventor of Afrobeat, Fela Kuti. Uh, you know, whatever the course of his life was, however tragic, he made a lot of great art, a lot of great music. Uh, and, you know, he really stood for something and continues to be an icon today. Literally look at any photo of this guy performing live and, you know, you can tell the magnitude behind this cat. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.